0: Hello, patrons, and welcome to another episode from our prestigious Pints series. Uh, We've again been trawling through our Rolodex of Agile contacts and uh, we came up with Lisa Crispin. Uh, Lisa, um, we had a chat with her. She's based all the way over in in the US, in Vermont, in the States, and Lisa has been an inspiration to to myself and Jeff and to many in the Agile community, mainly for her work with Agile testing. And she's written a couple of books, great books, Agile testing and more Agile testing. Uh, along with her co-author Janet Gregory and Lisa and Janet are both very much seen as kind of leading lights uh, for quality and agile testing within our space. So we had a chat funnily enough about agile testing, the future of agile testing, um, how she got started and where she see it, sees it's going and where she sees her role is within it. Um, so it's great to catch up. We hope you enjoy this episode um, and we hope you've enjoyed all the other prestigious potents episodes and there may well be more on the way. So keep stay tuned. Um, so without any further ado, here we go. <laughs>
1: cool i I wish i wish we'd recorded that but for the benefit of the tape lisa crispin is here and she's just been she's introduced me to a new word a kegerator (laughs) which is something i'm not going to be on my birthday list and her husband what's the name of your husband bob 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 has a legendary experience of brewing his own beer um and and cider or just beer
2: he had a furminator as well
1: (gasps) another word <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. where you where you ferment the beer
1: a fermentator oh, yeah. well you're talking of cider you just linked us into cider i'm i'm on the cider today paul are you really yeah yeah i've got i've got a, a browns
2: oh well, that looks organic
0: yeah, yeah. local yeah. cider
2: really nice really and
1: nice. and i'm going to be opening it with oh what's that an agile pubcast bottle opener <laughs> Ooh, I oh i want
2: one
1: <laughs> agile pubcast bottle opener new merchandise that's awesome. prototype it works you've only got one then no I've that, that was the prototype
0: <laughs> the box is over there okay
1: not sure what to do with them yet but there we go we'll find something
0: i need some of those i need to get, need to get some
1: so, of those. yeah lisa um i know it's a little bit early for you so we're not expecting you to be getting on the uh on the Raz right now
2: oh i've been up for hours
1: <laughs> okay but only well, had... feel free <laughs>
2: I had two mugs of tea though. My husband's going to bring me another one cuz that's not enough caffeine.
1: Okay. Cool. So we um yeah, you, I know you've listened to a few of the episodes so you know that we get in trouble if we don't describe what we're drinking. So I'm drinking an organic single variety cider. I'm not quite sure whether that makes a difference or not whether it's single variety or not, but it's full right to the brim. It's very very light in color. Oh, that's okay. pretty. Yeah.
2: I, my- I'm keen for cider, yeah.
1: And that oh yeah that is that's much nicer than um than I've had for what it does say sharp with a little sweetening and that is a pretty accurate description my first thought was sweet and then I got a bit of a sharpness to it I would say it tastes slightly more orange than it looks orange
2: I don't know why. yeah that's <laughs> nice I like the sound of that
1: Had, had
0: a, a color, not like the fruit the color okay there you go what do you want Paul um as it's lunchtime here uh, for me i'm being good and i'm having an alcohol free one jeff good for you but it's just uh thatchers which is a, it's kind of low cost opposed to the west country Thatchers zero uh, nice it's pretty it's it's fizzy apple juice that's all it is really so you i'm paying an extortionate price for fizzy apple juice but i'm yeah. having mine over ice because it's a very nice hot day so i'm going to pour mine over ice oh,
2: so Lisa, you're
1: joining us from vermont thank you for thank you for taking the time out to join us today
2: my pleasure my pleasure
1: how long have you been in vermont
2: coming up on three years okay yeah yeah because
1: the last time i saw you was in was in cold colorado wasn't it yep we had dinner somewhere in colorado we made the
2: cross-country trek with all the dogs and cats and donkeys it was very exciting so how did you get the donkeys well we have a a a horse trailer that that i had specially for the donkeys, because it has room in the back for my big wagon that two of my donkeys pull as a team. And then it has a front compartment that's big enough for the donkeys. And the front compartment has a door that's intended for people to go in and out because the back has a ramp so we can, you know, get the wagon in and out. And we we needed to load up the wagon and then load all kinds of, you know, food for the donkeys and all kinds of stuff. We didn't want to unload it every time we stopped. So we taught the donkeys to jump in and out the people door and you know, it's a good I'd say half a meter jump. And for a little donkey, that's only that's less than a meter tall. That's a pretty big jump. Yeah, but they were really good sports. They just jumped in and out.
1: In my head, I was kind of imagining the donkeys pulling your wagon of of goods across the Wild West.
2: We (laughs) thought about that. It's like, well, this would make a good like documentary.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, stick on Netflix. Uh, Apologies in advance. But one of my favorite jokes involves a donkey. Oh, so you probably heard it before you probably heard all of them before but donkey walks into the bar and the bartender says hey and the donkey says yes you read my mind
2: that's very good i hadn't heard that one
1: (laughs) it's very kind of you to say my jokes are pretty terrible (laughs) ah yes okay so so i'm
2: I'm just going to put in a plug for our locals the local cider that i prefer here called jacksbury cider and it's based in virgin which is a, a little city about 15 minutes from us so
1: what's it called
2: shaxbury
0: Shaxbury. Like and the, so one yeah, like of the things berry. they
2: one of the things they do is a lot of there are just tons of apple trees here and like in our we have 30 acres and we have a, probably 20 apple trees that have just been they're just wild right yeah. so they're they're real big and the apples mostly are ones you want to eat oh, the, the deer eat them but they do they could make good cider and so shaxbury will go out if people just want somebody to pick their apples and use them they'll go mm. and 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 they're very interested in finding like heritage varieties and stuff which is okay. a lot of times what you find out on the old farms so mm. I think that's a cool thing they do
1: nice I made some cider a couple of years ago and it's amazing how many people just want you to co- come and get rid of all their apples yeah, <laughs> <Not just laughs> yeah you, hate them
2: to, you hate to see them go to waste or don't go to waste because the deer and turkeys eat them but and the donkeys when I when I'm stir myself to go pick some
1: nice nice yes yeah, so thank you for joining us. this uh I'm, we didn't really give you too much of a of, of an introduction to what you've let yourself in for it's nothing nothing bad i promise but um yeah, we we've done a little s- sort of spin-off series if you like called prestigious points where oh, i'm
2: very honored i well, not at, at all we, we are... look at
1: people who've been big influences in the agile space over the last 15 20 years a uh, few <laughs> years then um yeah, you know, your name naturally comes up. The, the amount of people that I've met who've said, you know, I've I've reached out to Lisa and she's been very generous with her time offering coaching and mentoring. I don't know how you fit it in because you have a day job as well as writing books and blogs. I don't know how you, how you fit it all in, but you've, you're have you sort of affectionately known as the Agile Testing Lady.
2: <laughs> well, yes, and along with Janet Gregory, my, my co-author and partner in crime. Of she's course. the idea person and, you know, I'm the one who goes and makes my team try the ideas, so
1: is that is that how do you feel about that because we spoke to esther about being known as the retrospective lady and, and there are upsides and downsides to that from her perspective how do you feel about that
2: uh you know it's it's an honor really i mean there was a time as you probably remember jeff that the extreme programming community didn't think they needed any stinking testers mm-hmm. and so to <laughs> have agile and testing just in the same phrase is is wonderful we've really come a long way
0: yeah we have do you think- Do you think that's, because you mentioned about XP, Lisa, then that was one of my questions actually, is that from my history of of coaching and and facilitating developers especially, is there still that sense of animosity you think towards testing or do you think it's changed over the last few years?
2: I think it's it's got more complex (laughs) (laughs) and it just depends. You know, as you know, there are still plenty of organizations out there that are pretty much back in the 90s in terms of how they create software and so Mm -hmm. nothing's changed. Um sometimes on agile teams they see the testers as the people who go off and automate all the all the regression tests. Yeah. If <laughs> we look a real anti-pattern to me. Yeah. So if you can't code, you can't be an auto a test. What do they call them? Automation testers. What does that mean? Automation test? It sounds like you're testing the automation. Which you <laughs> should. Um and so uh and then I think more there are more and more organizations that are embracing a DevOps culture, including all the roles working together and they wanna include somebody with testing expertise. Uh, But in that case, they only maybe want one or two for a team or or maybe one for every four teams. I don't think they need a lot. And so there's a continuum there. (laughs) It's hard to find the happy medium of having enough testers. I work on a team of, I think there are 12 of us in the team. And two of us are testers Mm. but uh we do ensemble programming and um you know i just work as part of the part of the we call them blobs i'm trying to get them to say ensemble instead of mob because i don't like the word mob but um blob is good (laughs) (laughs) so i blob is is is
1: the two out of 12 is that is that a good number because of other variables like so i've seen teams where the more you think of testing as a whole team responsibility rather than the responsibility of the testers, the more you can get away with fewer t- testers, if you like, is that?
2: Well, it's if you embrace the good development practices. So in this case, they're usually practicing test-driven development. Mm-hmm. Um, this team is not yet practicing behavior-driven or acceptance tests or driven development or specification by example, trying to kind of, ease them that way, but (laughs) test-driven development is a foundation. That has to happen. Continuous integration has to happen. Um, Working in small chunks and frequently delivering small chunks, all that has to happen. And if that's happening and the team really is focused on quality and building quality, and yes, it's it's fine to have one testing specialist to help transfer those skills. What I find is uh, what I bring to the party is usually things like Helping them learn how to do exploratory testing, helping them to go, oh, maybe we should do some accessibility testing, or how about security testing, and and just introducing them to tools that can help them, techniques that can help them. Hmm. Uh, it's like, oh, well, let's let's um let's make the testing more visible, like for this feature or this epic, we'll put in some exploratory testing charters as stories in the backlog so that we're aware that work needs to be done and anybody can pick those stories up and do them. So those are the kind of things I feel like I, I bring to the party. I mean, you know, Janet and I have always seen testers as having a strong role as kind of a consultant, suggesting things a team can do to improve their testing, improve their quality. Hmm.
0: How, did you start, how did you get started with it all these? How, how did you get, where did te- the, your testing background come from?
2: Well, I started as a programmer back in the day Back in the day when it was a low paid job. So there were lots of women. (laughs) (laughs) I got trained on the job and I had a wonderful I mean, we were doing agile back then, that wasn't a word and we didn't know anything. I think it was before Waterfall even was invented. So, you know, we worked collaboratively. The new the new crop of hires got trained by the most recent crop of hires. We had a great education program. We did a lot of a lot of pairing Uh, and we didn't know anything about writing requirements. Certainly we didn't even use the word testing, but it was at a university. And so if a department needed some software, somebody from there would just come and sit with us and tell us what they wanted. Yeah. And we used a a 4GL so we could, you know, we could spin it up really quickly and say, well, how does this look? How does this look? Oh yeah, that's fine. And we even taught them. We even taught the people in the academic departments to, to do their own reports, to do their own little, you know, forms and stuff. Um, we had a really successful education program, So it was really, I mean, talk about collaborative. We even had our, our customers writing their own code. Um, and that just seemed so natural for me. And then when I left there and joined a consulting company and we were doing waterfall, like, what is this? Like spending weeks creating those big requirements documents. So anyway, that was yucky. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up in tech support for a software company and, um, and we were we were located in Denver, Colorado and our most of our developers are in Germany. And so this is back when we're just answering the phones. We didn't even have faxes yet. Nice. <laughs> and so people are calling like how did you not catch that giant bug in this new release? <laughs> like, oh, you no, know, cuz we didn't know about it. We don't we just got it at the same time you did. So we asked the developers like could you just send us those tapes maybe a week before you send it to the customers? Yeah. <laughs> And so we started installing and trying testing them out and so at least then when people called and all mad that we'd say what we're working on a patch we'll have it out in a couple of days don't worry uh and our managers were like hmm that's an interesting idea maybe we could test this stuff before we <laughs> send it to the customers
0: what a novel idea yeah
2: so they formed it's a, like a, kind of a testing and release department and i put my hand up That like, that sounds fun yeah. i like programming but it was more fun to you know trying to suss out how's this stuff working and where are the problems and how can we fix it so uh, and I think, also i really enjoyed like back in the day cutting it. release tapes for all the different flavors of unix and vast VMS <laughs> and you know
0: you say you really enjoyed you really enjoyed the testing element do you think and i speak to a lot of teams now and they and, and testers within the team and i think it is it's an enjoyment from not i'm not going to say breaking things but i'm, I'm going to say stress <laughs> stressing things out and stress testing things and, and yeah. taking things to their breaking point is that yeah, true that do you think it is a mindset thing
2: i think it is i mean i think anybody could have that mindset but testers are certainly they're in testing because they have it like what if what if i do this what's the worst thing that could happen <laughs> where whereas people writing code have to be more focused on What's the most valuable thing here? I have to get that working. I got to get this happy path working. That's right. You should do that. But then you should start thinking about, you know, the sad path and the edge cases, and still focused on value. That's one of the things I've fallen into over the years as a tester is is, oh, I know the smelly. I can smell that part of the code where the bugs <laughs> probably are. And you know, my teams have, in the past, had to come to me and say, Lisa. Yeah, that's cool that you found this bug. Could you just make sure the happy path works first? (laughs) (laughs) And so focusing on value to the customer, that's something I've really learned in the last few years. And especially now that we can get so much data on what the customers think is valuable, we can see what they're using. Yeah. You know, we can put a change out and see if they engage with it and whether they call customer support because they didn't understand it or, you know, email customer support, whatever. So we get all the analytics, all the data. That's really helpful and that helps us we can't ever test everything so let's let's hone in on the things that'll help our customers have a better day.
1: Yeah. It's um I know that that sort of things have changed, haven't they? And you, know, you can't help but change with it and see different things. I know you like us you you went through a bit of a reflective period around the 20 year anniversary of the manifesto and that's kind of what prompted us to do this this series really is, is sort of catch up and one of the things that we've been asking a lot of people is you know what what else is different for you now than, than 20 years ago
2: um, well definitely for tests for testing and quality the the fact that we can now test in production in an effective hmm. way and not a negative way <laughs> um, and get all this data and watch what people are doing and instrument our code so that when things go wrong I'm, something completely unexpected all those unknown unknowns mm-hmm. we can respond to it really fast so I've gotten very interested in the last few years in observability people like Abby Bangs and charity majors and Lin Fong Jones and I could go on and on with all the people involved with that uh, I've seen the importance of that for from a testing perspective and things like chaos engineering I mean this is asking questions of your production system and explore it basically you know somebody said it's tool assisted exploratory testing and production when you have all these uh, tools that help you instrument the code and, and monitor what it's doing and get traces of oh this user's journey through through the product. That's really important. And I, I've been trying the last few years to get testers to embrace, you know, all sides of that DevOps loop. Mm -hmm. uh continuous testing loop janet janet calls it holistic testing we need to be testing and dana ashby came up with a graph a few years ago that everybody is always stealing but you know showing we should test here we should test here we should test here you know we test we test the ideas we test as we code we do some exploratory testing before we put it out there we we uh we watch the monitors we we see what's going on um, yeah. we look at the analytics and we get that data and feed it back yeah. in so we test all along the both sides of that loop but testers are kind of afraid to go on the right side of that devops loop because the tools are different mm. um it's a big challenge it's a challenge for me too you know and just when i learn one tool i join another company and they're using a different tool so it's like ah.
1: <laughs> how do you get people past that fear uh,
2: I, I'm not sure I've succeeded at it, but just trying to um, kind of just build a community of people who are interested in it. Hmm. And like I said, people like Abby Bangzer, I think she, because she identifies herself as a tester, but she is an SRE in her work. Uh, I think she can she can explain to people how it relates. Like she wrote a really good blog post about alert fatigue. So if your team's getting alerts all the time from production, yeah, yeah. you just... Get numb to it. It's the same with failing tests. Mm, yeah, we get flaky automated regression tests. You just stop paying attention. Oh, it's just flaky. Just flaky. what well, might really be a bug. Oof,
1: woof, woof. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. And so I think stories like that can show testers. It's like it's still testing. It's just a different format. Mm. And um, and and our question asking abilities are still really valuable there. Mm. Seeing things from a different perspective than maybe the platform engineers who are embedded in it every day. So I, you know, I really wanted to move more into that area, but unlike Abby, I do not have strong coding skills. And I find, I mean that is a limitation. I find that if uh, if a team is not already instrumenting their code like uh, for observability, like maybe they're instrumenting it for monitoring but not for observability. It's I can't sit down and show them how. Okay. i can't sit down and say well if you yeah. used open telemetry and you you know it's really easy to do this in your code and then you're going to see this out in honeycomb or lightstep or whatever tool you're using uh, that's a limitation and so what we have to do is testers that aren't coders uh, i'm working on my coding skills but really slow um is collaborate so our collaboration skills our communication skills getting the platform engineers and the developers and everybody to engage with us And you know, where I'm working now, there's been a real push to, you know, it's all about the platform and let's get the people from the platform team embedded in the development teams. And conversely, let's get some developers, some engineers from the development teams embedded in the platform team. I think that's a really great way to promote that DevOps culture instead of having a DevOps team off somewhere. Hmm. Uh, nice and work. so I'm hoping it's an opportunity for me to to do a lot of learning. And now somebody on my team is part part time on the platform team, and so it's easy for me to reach out to him and ask him, you know, for help. And can you explain this to me? And and how would we test this? We're about to cut over to a new subdomain, you know, on our product. Like, oh, well, what what do we, what's important to test with that? You know, getting yeah. help with that.
0: With with the reliance on tools, then, Lisa. Obviously, tools have grown massively is there perhaps a risk that more tools more less collaboration or teams might be some of the communication skills have have been more secondary to the tools in in the first place do you think or not
2: i don't think that's a new problem i mean look at testing it's always been i mean since i started testing in the early 90s it was all about the new test automation tool is going to fix all our problems (laughs) and uh and i think i'm guessing that probably happens too with things like monitoring tools or yeah. I mean, like we use like the tool like Sentry. It's supposed to use machine learning to to note mm-hmm. anomalies and alert you about them. That's cool. Yeah. I don't 100 percent trust that it's going to catch everything. So, you know, you can't have a tool like Sentry and like, well, we don't need those platform engineers anymore, <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's a tendency with the business side. We have to educate the business side because the business executives are like, oh, no, this this vendor is marketing to me and telling me that if I buy this tool I can fire all my testers uh or I can fire all my platform engineers maybe I don't know if people say that but I'm just guessing but there's a tendency to want to buy a tool and be done because people are hard to deal with
1: yeah yeah I don't think that is anything new is it really that's always and to a degree there's an element of that's probably a good thing to a degree that uh, what comes to mind is that Gates Bill Gates quote of you know show me uh, give me a problem and I give me a lazy developer because they would solve it in the simplest mm-hmm. way if you can buy something that can do something then brilliant but putting all your hopes and faith and everything into into a tool even if it's got machine learning it the people need to teach that machine right and, mm-hmm. and your circumstance is going to be different to everyone else's so yeah what's what's Is that is that the hardest thing then? Is it? What would you say has been the hardest thing about agile testing?
2: Um, I I do think the hardest thing is just sort of educating people, all the different ways that testers testing specialists on the team could help. Yeah. And getting people to think beyond functional testing. That's I mean, when I was on extreme programming teams in the early aughts I was just as guilty as anybody else of totally focused on functional testing it's like well Mm -hmm. we're doing TDD and we're doing ATDD and we've got all these tests that captured our requirements and they're all working they're all passing we have living documentation it's great but they're they're the most
1: visible things aren't they that's the most yeah that's the visible bottleneck that we see Mm.
2: yeah and so that's great I mean we were doing a great job of that and then I went to a couple conferences in 2006 and I saw I was in some really good talks about security testing and performance testing, and which I had done in the past. But just when I got on XP team, it's all about, oh, we're working on these stories, and we're getting them out, and we have the regression tests. And um, and it was a real wake up call. I came back to my team, and I'm like, maybe we should do (laughs) some security performance testing. And we were a startup, right? So we hadn't reached the scale. Mm Where that was affecting us yet, yeah, but we we're a financial services company, so for sure security would be important. Yeah. But I couldn't really get the management to pay much attention. And it's like, well, I bought a security testing book, and I immediately found some holes in our security and uh, told people, and they're like, ah, you know, follow bug. And um, <laughs> and then there were some performance. We we're like, we need to do performance testing. We did some. Like, we gotta. We we settled on lunch a meter as our performance test tool and. It's like, okay, we need to get a baseline, but we don't have an environment that looks enough like production to get a baseline that would be meaningful. So we kept asking the the, the CEO, like we need we just need to buy another machine that's a lot like production. Yeah. God, you know, so it wasn't until the day, there was one really slow uh, query, really run slow slurred procedure behind a report in production that people only did once a quarter so our customers only pull this report once a quarter well we finally got enough customers and of course they all did it at the same time because it was something we had to give the government <laughs> we finally one day enough people pull that report at the same time It actually brought our whole system down and the ceo comes running back to us and says can't you at least put a page up saying that we're down and we're like what part of the whole system being down do you not understand <laughs> so the next day we had the money for our performance testing environment
1: that's it yeah
2: But, you know, we were just ignoring that and a lot, I think a lot of XP teams working at small startups went through the same kind of thing and then they kind of woke up and it's like, ooh, you know, all these other forms of exploratory testing. People were probably doing it some and not having a name for it, but Mm -hmm. not realizing there are a lot of good techniques, things like what Elizabeth Hendrickson has in her book, Explore It, of, you know, writing exploratory testing charters and playing the nightmare headlines game. What don't we want to see on Twitter tomorrow after we release? Uh... Well,
1: that's, see, that's, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I, 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 w- I can't possibly name anybody associated with this. Let's call it a hypothetical story, um, where to get that sort of management buy-in for increasing quality and increasing redundancy, they, they basically paid a friend to play the role of a reporter, gave them a senior manager's email address, and said look i hear there are a number of security flaws in your product um that that's, that's affected data and your users uh, do you have any comment on that and and s- as soon as we got that email, the next what a
2: great which- idea
1: <laughs> but it's a similar kind of thing to the twitter headline thing isn't it so yeah but in terms of getting senior people's attention it usually comes down to reputation and am i going to be labeled with this Mm-hmm um and they can't see it until it happens because we have a loss aversion we have a sort of you know, that that kind of you know, I, I don't want to I just ignore it. i'm in denial mm-hmm. have you come up with any better techniques over the years for forget because it is a difficult thing isn't it to get support for
2: yeah i mean sometimes you just have to let the train wreck and like in that case mm. uh, sometimes it's, it's you know potential business partners for the company that come to the rescue because they're like okay we're gonna do a security audit oh that's how my security bugs got fixed yeah we came with a, a partner came in and said, well, we're, we want to do a, a security audit and a penetration test. And they were like, "Ooh, maybe we better clean up what we know about first.
1: And So that was a case of somebody saying we're not going to do business with you unless you let mm-hmm. us do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: yeah. And so, I, you know, it's been uh, it's been something I've wrestled with for the last few decades of how do we educate management, certainly up to us, I think. Concepts like technical debt are pretty easy to explain because you can mm-hmm. boil it down to money. Yeah. Here's how much it's costing you or here's how much our velocity is slowing down. They love, you know, I'm not a huge fan of velocity as a metric, but uh, if you've got a team that's pretty consistent and the velocity is pretty meaningful, you can say, look, at our, well, look at our velocity going down. We need we need a couple of weeks just to just to focus on our technical debt and not deliver any new business features mm. Well, we do that. And you can make a case for it. They understand it. But it's it's hard for us to learn how to speak the language of the business sometimes. Um, I really like um, always peer and Ronald uh, Cummings John's book, Leading Quality, because um, it's more about you know how do you how do we make this case to the executives since they themselves had a startup which failed because the quality was bad. Mm. So that's how they learned. <laughs> but they know how to put it in business terms because they're business people. Yeah who learned about quality the hard way. Um, and so I think we're learning more about how do we educate executives. And, and, it's, and it's something we need to do and, but, um, and making quality visible. That's one thing I've always tried to do. How can I make people understand? Very few companies, they all say they want good quality. Very few companies know why it's so important, how much investment you need and why that's so important and how it pays off. And I think one of the problems is it only pays off in the long-term usually. And at least in the United States, it's all about, especially for public companies, it's all about your profit for this quarter. Mm. So it's really hard to get people to make long-term investments.
0: You talk about um, exposure and transparency and and the cost of these things. It just reminded me of that story. It was, I think it was yesterday, wasn't it? Um, Where uh, all those internet companies went down from from was it Fastly service went down oh, to, Fastly yeah I went yeah. down yesterday yeah and it was like like massive companies just all of a sudden they all their website traffic just closed i don't know the full details about why it happened i think it was some there was something
2: real in. embarrassing and controversial well, exactly. <laughs> But exactly i don't know just, what it was
0: you can imagine that somebody somewhere got fired for for for, <laughs> for whatever it was uh, that happened a, a plug that got pulled out or whatever it was or an update that's gone in or a test that's that's failed i imagine somewhere that that hasn't been captured and yeah and it... i mean
2: i those things are so public now i was listening to the roland garros radio the french open mm-hmm. tennis yeah and they were talking the commentators yeah. were like oh exactly. well so what a lot of the web is all the internet is down they don't know anything they're like it's this company fastly they don't know <laughs> even what that company is but they know the name yeah and these are not computer literate people <laughs>
0: Yeah, and all of a sudden the spotlight's on. Yeah, and that that, that need for um, resilience, isn't it? And 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 how quickly you can get these things back online. But well, yeah, and a, f-
2: a few that... weeks ago, Salesforce went down everywhere. Yeah. Um, and our our product where I work is based on Salesforce, and it was down for hours. But what mm. really bugged us was Salesforce was like blaming one engineer. Really. Mm. And it's like you know what? Is somebody might have made a mistake? Yeah. Why was it possible for them to make that mistake? Why have mm-hmm. you not built your system a yeah, guard against good point. Human error? Sure? That, was, that, that reminds not... me
0: of one of the sorry Jeff. That reminds me of one of the nicest things that I think I think it was JB who said that at a conference years years ago. But said, let's stop calling them bugs. Let's start calling them mistakes because because no, no developer intentionally puts things in there you know bugs to to break the system they're they're just mistakes well I've known one or two but (laughs) but I think yeah that's that's um yeah even just people pay a lot of attention to the language that yeah and and that blame thinking you've created a a defect you know an error in our system but in fact it might just have been a genuine overlook or a mistake I've got got to be
1: careful here I'm gonna I'm gonna branch off into a dangerous little area but it is very related and again, I'll, I'll, I'll keep things anonymous, but I have known a couple of companies who have actually used the negative publicity deliberately. So they will release something knowing that it's going to fail or a website's going to crash or what have you just and, and know that they can recover it very, very quickly to get that positive negative attention. and and turn it into a well we've recovered it really quickly but because you get that that company name out there you get the fact that they've launched something and, and and demand was so high that the website crashed but they've got it back up oh. do you know what i mean and yeah
2: so no there's no negative publicity or what's the saying
0: yeah
1: well yeah well, there's a the
2: thing as bad publicity that's
0: right yeah
1: there is if you can't recover from it or if you make it worse but they, <laughs> they had a plan in place to create some negative publicity so that they could turn it positive and i think that's quite Clever but manipulative.
2: Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Well, and this is the thing which I think in the book leading quality they talk, they talk about this. That I've worked for, I've worked for a startup where, um, you know, they knew there were a lot of bugs. They were really good. They were really good at observability, so they could really quickly detect problems in production, and they had a really fast uh, deployment pipeline so they could get fixes out really fast or they could re- revert really fast. And so they were not they were not really testing anything. They weren't doing test room development. They weren't they they automated a bunch of UI tests in a very poor, poorly designed way and um, didn't have any testers. And it was fine for a while because when you just have a handful of customers and you can hold their hands, yeah. say, don't worry, we'll have that bug fixed in ten minutes, Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. But when you start wanting to get some big enterprise customers it just doesn't work Mm. and i've you know i've heard that that company now has a team of like 10 or 12 developers that all they do is triage and fix bugs
1: Uh, not the
2: approach i would take
1: (laughs) yeah
0: yeah
2: (laughs) all about bug prevention i mean it's good to detect them but it better to prevent them
0: What's, Lisa, what is your general advice then because it links slightly to that your comment just there on a team who has a backlog, but they also so they've got features side by side with um, bugs, defect management maintenance of the current system. Do you have a general a, any advice about how to split that time or because there's a, a, several different ways to do it, I suppose, but do you have a preference as to how to manage that time effectively?
2: Well, I'm hoping that that team is, knows how to self-organize, it's allowed to be autonomous and figure out a good way that will work for them. What has worked for my teams? I joined a team back in 2003 uh, that had decided to, to a, the, the co-founders of the company who knew nothing, their whole business depended on the software, their business model depended on the software but they didn't know anything about software. So they found, they were failing and they found out, well, agile development, that's good. So they hired, Wish I hired Mike Cohn, uh, really good <laughs> at agile development. But when I joined the company, the day I joined, there were 17 showstopper bugs,
0: <laughs> right? 17. And
2: uh, and there were I don't know hundreds of high bugs, and then you know many more hundreds of medium or whatever. And so what we decided to do, uh, well obviously the showstoppers had to get addressed. Um, and then, you know, what happens is the customers start filing things as showstoppers because otherwise uh, you get no yeah. attention. So, of course, it's back in our co-located days. I don't know how you, you could do the same thing online and be, be creative, but we got a police light that was in our mm-hmm. our area. And so if anybody on the operation side, customer support or whoever wanted to do a showstopper, they had to come turn the light on. So they weren't going to embarrass themselves and turn the light up for something that wasn't really serious. So that we, slowed down and gave we, us time to fix the shinstopper.
0: We won't ask where the, how someone got their hands on a police light from the top of the car. We, we oh, you can there. get them off Amazon. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure it didn't I'm make sure. noise. It just
2: flashed. Okay. Right. But it was annoying. Well, it did make a noise, but it wasn't intentional. It had a squeak <laughs> to it. Um, and then we said, okay, we're going to do so many story points, and then co- collaborating with the product owner. We're doing Scrum, so many story points, a sprint Mm -hmm. to devoted to the bugs. So we asked the business people to prioritize the bugs in order. And so we had this long list of of high bugs and and we've so, you know, we'd fix a few. Every sprint we'd show at the demo, we fix these bugs and they'd be very happy. And um, and of course we were also doing a you know we were doing the strangler fig pattern and I had a new architecture and all the features we were implementing brand new were working so that was that was making them happy, um, so we finally got through all it took us a few months we got through all the high bugs, and so then it was like cool we'll start on the normal bugs, so at the next demo we're like okay we fixed these ten normal bugs and, and they were like what, <laughs> why are you worried about why are you spending any time on those,
0: yeah.
2: We want new features we don't care about the normal bugs oh and you know that's a business decision and i think people get really caught up if we had to fix all the bugs that are in the backlog yeah you know what you need to probably throw away most of the bugs that are in the backlog and you know there's been a lot of debate over the years should we even have a bug tracking tool yeah Uh, i think the goal is to not to need it yeah so that was our approach but i mean there could be a lot of ways to do it maybe having a team of people but the problem is when you put other people in charge of fixing the bugs the developers who made those mistakes as you say are not feeling the pain
0: yeah
2: they don't care somebody else is going to worry about it Mm. it's the same with testing if the developer's not involved in testing they're oblivious to
0: yeah problems you're right and the greater good of course is like you've mentioned before is that try to create more of a culture around quality if that's the case you would hope it may be it may be a bit of a utopian dream but Maybe, maybe less less bugs certainly, and less and less errors to have to address. Yeah, if, you, if we're all paying attention to quality.
2: And the other thing is, who wants to spend their career fixing oh, bugs?
0: Oh yeah, nobody really wants to be in a support team. Surely, that's you know who, maintenance <laughs> maintenance team.
2: I mean, I quit my first programming job because, um, for budgetary reasons, we'd done a prototype. It's back in the 80s. We'd done a prototype for the first online catalog for the university of texas library This is when online catalogs were a new thing <laughs> and the prototype was a huge success so we're like okay we're ready to do the real thing let's go there's no budget <laughs> so you will be doing maintaining cobalt programs for the next year till the budgets next budget rolls around and i was like no i won't <laughs>
0: no thank you
1: I'd, so i'm i'm, I'm going to link that to a couple of other things that you said so you mentioned you didn't that taking that step i think you said it was rather flippantly there but i think there was a lot more bravery involved in that than just saying no i won't be because leaving a job, oh, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: but still you look back at it and you think no oh, it was yeah but at the time i'm sure there was, a, there was a lot more bravery involved in taking that decision. you also mentioned mike Cohn, and i'm going to link those two together with the other thing that i associate with you um it, which is not just testing so you you sort of stood up for quality over the last 20 years been a leading light for quality and agile teams and software development which is not quite a thankless task but it's a pretty hard task
2: (laughs) it's causing some grief
1: yeah yeah and the other the other thing that I associate with you is your support for women in tech which again is not quite a thankless task but it's another pretty tough task Um, and we've interestingly well, I thought about that I just looked through the people that we've interviewed so far so we, you are our ninth person and five of them are female that we consider to be our biggest influences in the agile world over the last 20 years so would you say that things have changed I know they've probably still got a long way to go but would you say they have changed
2: um I think there's more awareness but I still think that Uh, even the leading women that you have interviewed, I don't think their voices is heard at the same level as the men in similar with similar experience and similar. Skills, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so there are a lot of a lot of awesome men like yourselves that I follow and, and, you know, listen to your podcasts or look at your tweets, read your blogs. I don't necessarily amplify those on Twitter. Because I want to spend my Twitter amplification do- with the women who are doing similar things, who are not getting mentioned as much. Sure. Um, and that's just to try to even it up a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, I certainly I will if I it's like. Wow, I learned something awesome from Jeff or Paula. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spread that word. But I'm focused on amplifying women's voices still, and and minorities as well, of course. Um, but it has changed. I mean. Some of the things in the testing community, you know, years ago, I think it was Deborah Proust who gave me this idea of pairing with people for Mm -hmm. to speak because I knew a lot of young women who were submitting to the agile conference or whatever and They'd never they didn't have a lot of experience speaking and they just get turned down because they weren't big names Yeah. like well, I can use my power for good. I mean, I don't think I'm that big a name, but I could get accepted to a conference. And um, and so I started pairing with them. It's like, OK, I am going to do this workshop, but I'm going to have this person do it with me. Is that OK? Will you come mm-hmm. them, too? Oh, OK. Mm-hmm. And so that was a great way to get one more women into it and then the um, Fiona Charles and Anne-Marie Charrette started Tech Voices, um, which was originally called Speakeasy speak or Speaking Easy, but they had to change the name because somebody, somebody already had it. So not they started a mentoring program and it was open to everybody, but really they were focused more on, on trying to help women. And it's like, if you want to be a speaker, we'll provide you a mentor. And then they went one step further, which is really the smart part, is they went to conference organizers. And they said, would you reserve some sessions for these new speakers, these new mm-hmm. voices and some really enlightened the conference organizers were like, sure. And maybe they'd have a whole new voices track. Yeah, yeah. And some of them even started preserving keynote slots for the new voices. Mm-hmm. And it I mean, if you looked at testing conferences 10 years ago, even you might see a lot of women on the program speaking, but not in the keynote positions, not in the tutorial workshop positions. Mm. And now when you look, not all unfortunately, but a lot of conferences, the landscape has really changed. So things like that have really changed. Uh, companies that make an effort are hiring more women. The company where I work is very transparent about admitting that their numbers of women in tech are terrible. Yeah. And But just in the last quarter, or the I guess so far this year, they've hired a lot of new women and they're really they're really focused on that as and people of color as well. Um, so not every company does that. Not every company makes a sincere effort. They go, well, it's just too hard. We have to know. I mean, we all have unconscious bias. Yep. I have it too. I'm, I'm statistically more likely to want a male candidate over a female candidate, even though consciously mm-hmm. that's not what I want. Um, it's hard to work against that bias and we have to do a lot of extra work. So it's kind of an uphill battle, but I think it's changing. Um, you know, these, the people I'm working with, of course, everybody I work with is practically is right out of school. And so it's exciting. (laughs) We just (laughs) just had a new, uh, a new developer join the team this week. She, she just graduated. She had worked one summer as an intern where I work. And so we were in our ensemble yesterday or blob. (laughs) <laughs> and And the people I was just somebody I haven't worked with that much before in the in the ensemble and um and they were not doing test driven development. I was like, huh, and, and they were acting like they were done with the story. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, do you have any unit tests? Well, no, <laughs> uh and you know, I could tell them thinking, and you know, I'm new to the company, and I you know. I'm not the I'm not the coder, so I I don't feel like I can tell them what to do. But this young woman who just graduated, it's like, well, no, we really need tests for this reason and that reason. And, you know, and here's the here's the way I think we should do it. And she was really standing up for quality there and she yeah. just came out of school. I don't know if they're doing a better job in universities or that was just her. But it's very exciting to me, for me to see the younger people coming out and really championing good practices.
1: Yeah. I, I think you've done you've done a hell of a lot to help that, and so um you know, f- for one of the reasons we got you here is just to to say a massive thank you, not just for our perspective, but from the whole industry's perspective for all the hard work. Oh, well well, it's, in, in it's been a
2: collaborative. Things. It's been a collaborative effort. You Absolutely, know, of course, me and Janet and a lot of other people that have that have helped with that effort.
1: And if all those people were here, we'd say thank you to them as well. But we want.
2: Don't oh, don't, don't put
1: you. down your part in that, because I know you're one of the most humble people that I've ever met. And <laughs> that 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 young lady who who uh, who was standing up for quality probably didn't realise that you were the person that wrote the book she read in university.
2: Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know if she read the book, but...
1: but yeah, um, it's cool. What do you, what do you, what, I know? We've we've used up a lot of your time already. But what what do you see as the sort of next challenges that that we need to to address from a from a quality perspective?
2: I think really getting more organizations to embrace continuous delivery or continuous deployment, whichever whichever flavor that you want. Embracing the idea that if we did small changes more frequently, we would have a lot less risk. We'd be able to manage our work better. Uh, We would not have some big ball of mud (coughs) waiting for us right before release. (laughs) Yeah. it just seems so obvious, but I mean, I look say, at-
1: How do you see that and think, what? how can you think like that anymore? It's, this is 2021 <laughs> for Christ's sake. I know,
2: I look at when did continuous delivery with Jet Humble and, and um, David Farley's book came out in 20,
1: 2009 or 10? I was going to say, it's, it's over 10 years ago, isn't it?
2: Yeah, uh, Why? I mean, you, you know, you can say the same thing about XP. Why are not more people not, do, not doing TDD, for yeah. example? But it's like, yeah change is slow um it seems really obvious to us but i've learned from linda rising that uh our human brains we don't we don't make decisions we don't change our minds based on logic and facts
1: True, true. (laughs) it's
2: all about values and those are really hard to change um so i think that's one reason and 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 i use i use her and maryland's Man, this fearless change patterns a lot because mm. I know I can't just tell people well if we did this good things would happen
1: yeah
2: uh, I have to think of other ways to influence people
1: even so, though you actually could because you have literally with Janet written the book on no, that
2: doesn't <laughs> cut any ice that the teams I work on though that's no, the kind I know of what you mean. that's the kind of it's kind of embarrassing it's like you know, I, mean, I go to conferences all the time and tell people, and they go, "Oh yeah," and they shake their heads. And it, I tell my team that, and they go, "There's just like silence." So, mm. <laughs>
1: what
0: what do you think? Even now, Lisa is is the biggest misunderstanding about agile testing. Ooh, good question.
2: Ooh, that is a really good question. Hard to pinpoint just when. Hmm. I think one. I think. Interestingly enough, I think that maybe the biggest misunderstanding comes from the testing community or parts of the testing community. That think that somehow agile testing that they don't embrace all the testing activities on the spectrum and they're just focused on functional testing mm-hmm. and that it's kind of shallow. Um, you know, it's, they don't. They, I mean, agile testing, is just testing. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm not one for labels. Uh, I think years ago. It was about 2001, I was at a conference talking to Kent Beck. It was a testing conference, and um, he told me, he said, you know, because I said, why did you call it extreme programming? This is really a terrible name. And he said, well, I hope in 10 years people would just say it's a good way of developing software.
0: Yeah. But just nobody did. <laughs> the, 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 the word extreme would be dropped. It'd just be called programming, right?
2: Yeah. And, you know, then we got agile, and people really latched on that. something it's some, some, something else about human brains, I guess. We just need labels. We do,
0: yeah. I think you're right
2: so i just wish people wouldn't focus on label agile i uh i can't remember who wrote the blog post but there was somebody wrote a blog post about how oftentimes it's the the you know the other big exciting thing is devops Mm -hmm. but it's often a devops transformation that gets the team engaged in agile practices because like well we want to do continuous delivery yeah well guess what yeah (laughs) to do that we have to use really good development practices and 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 start Well, we have to we have to cut our features down into really small stories, and you know, get that cadence going. And
1: that's arguably the for me the more effective way of, of things happening because you it's, it's it's driven by value then rather than driven by this is how we want to develop software or this is how we want to build a product. No, no, this this is what we need to be able to to be effective. This is what we need to be able to be responsive, to be able to serve our customers, to be able to you know get to the mark get to market quicker and so on. And, and it drives the need that way.
2: So when y'all go into a company as a consultant mm-hmm. or coach, like how do you try to influence them to embrace those values and practices and principles?
1: We're pretty pretty similar in a way in that we've we've graduated away a little bit like what you said really. In in we've graduated away from saying yeah you know, we've got some expertise we've got some knowledge here and this is how you should do it. To so what are your pain points? You know yeah. what? Why do you need any kind of help at all? You know mm-hmm. um, and trying to not make it, make it come across as, well, Well, you're silly to be experiencing these problems, you know, like I've been flippantly saying, it's 2021, why are you experiencing that? But it's quite <laughs> easy to slip into those problems when you're in the day-to-day challenges of running a business, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a case of, you know, don't feel silly, where are our challenges? And how, you know, what can we tweak and what can we change to to make things a little bit less painful for you? But also be, be aware that actually what's presenting as is the issue right now might not turn out to be the real issue. Um, right. So- that that's pretty much you know where i start is you know, your your challenges yes they're unique but also that they're pretty similar to a lot of others and that's not a bad thing
2: yeah i I, and I think those coaching skills are so important i don't i don't feel like i have i don't feel like i have that talent to sort of step back and observe and then ask the pointed questions that get people thinking how do you develop those skills mm.
1: uh deliberate practice i think with anything else you know like you said around Testing being a, you said about asking questions. Your question-asking ability. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about how, giving yourself the license, the permission to ask those questions. Um, and sometimes that takes a little bit of step away from zeroing in and lasering in on the actual real problem and, and solution. And saying, well, what about if, and what about that, and what about this. And uh, so I think that's you know, that's something that I've always enjoyed over over time. And it's something I've had to work on because I have a natural desire to solve problems but I, I get
0: my problem solving kicks elsewhere now not 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 within the work <laughs> environment and I, Interesting. I think i think jeff contrary to you mentioned it's 20 years you, you think yeah how can people not have understood this now 20 years on but to a degree i think even 20 years on it's more acceptable now even though we know more we've got more history of, of an agile approach but it's even more acceptable for me to say i don't know because Nobody really knows yet. Mm. There's so many. Every company is different. Every Mm -hmm. every approach is different, and we don't really know yet what's going to work for you because we don't really know what the problem is fully yet. So, I think I've become more comfortable with saying I don't know, or I don't think anyone knows yet. Yeah, it's
1: it's a balance, isn't it? Because you know, I can I can absolutely empathise with with those leaders or managers who you say I've got this challenge, and you've got somebody who. Has got twenty years in the game, and they're, they're calling themselves this kind of role, and yet they say, "I don't know." What yeah. do you think? I can absolutely empathise with with the with the flimsiness of that, um, but equally, I think they've been burnt so many times by someone coming along and saying, "No, this is the answer." You know, this yeah. is mm-hmm. this is the this is the nirvana. This is the, the snake oil, or, or what have you, and, and and realizing that actually, as tempting as it is to believe that and to grasp onto it, they know that it's false certainty. Mm-hmm. So it's giving them that that sort of not quite middle ground because it probably is slightly towards one extreme rather than the pure middle, but the sense of you know I've got some experience, I've seen failure patterns, I've seen success patterns, and I can I can acknowledge the fact that in general you know you're pretty similar to every other organisation because you're just dealing with people and complexity, but you also have your own sort of unique challenges, and and it's about finding out what works for you from this list of patterns. Mm-hmm. And I think. Mm-hmm. I look back at the people who've inspired me over the years. They haven't been dogmatists, they've been people that have, that, that have said, you know what, this, this can work in this situation, this can work in this situation, but I'm not going to say it's going to work everywhere. Um, and here are some techniques that you can use, but the best thing is to probably try them and tweak them and make your own. That seems to be a common thread in the people that have inspired me over the years, um, and you know, yourself being one of them. Who, who, who would you say has inspired you over your career?
2: Oh, so many people, so many people. I mean, when you were you were just what you were just saying, it reminded me, you know, working, getting to work for Mike Cohn Mm -hmm. back in the early aughts. You know, he's also a wonderful coach and he knew how to help our team become self-organizing or autonomous. And I don't think people realize how difficult that is Mm -hmm. for a team. Like we'd have all these problems. I'm sure he (laughs) knew the answers like he probably knew something that would work, but he wouldn't tell us. He would just ask the questions and what's the biggest thing in your way? And and, you know, he would sort of coach us to solve our own problems. And I don't think enough I don't think enough people do that. Hmm. Um, I mean, certainly like Linda Rising has inspired me a lot because she I learned from her uh, well, lots of things about the unconscious biases and stuff, but also about the small experiments like identifying your biggest problem. And of course, we have people like Esther Derby and Diana Larson to give us great ideas for retrospectives, so we can do that. Yep. And then, then think of some small experiment, small frugal experiment that you can do for you know a week or two, and see if it helps chip away at that problem. Uh, and how would you measure it? And That's the hard part. How are we going to measure it? And uh, and so that's what I try to bring to my teams and and get them. Let's just try this and. The teams that do try it and start chipping away at their problems with those small experiments, I I feel like those have become the most high-performing teams. But you know, often I run into an organization where they think they haven't been doing a good job of retrospectives, so that retrospectives are useless, a so waste of time. That's their that's their view. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's the most important thing you can do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really hard to get people to do it when they've had a terrible time. So like where I work now, I I learned a lot at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> I'd already facilitated partially remote retrospectives where some people were on site, some people were
0: mm-hmm.
2: other places. So, and we turned those into fully like everybody be online for it. Um, yeah. But I learned a lot about good ways to get people engaged uh, when everybody's remote and um i can't think of their name but they're two women from south africa who have a, a book and i think a video course on yeah,
1: Jay Allen um, and um yes uh, Kristen, kirsten yes kirsten Clayton. yes
2: uh i learned about them from Louise perrold and got their book and just such simple ideas but so transformative and and i've used those in in the remote workshops which i find them very stressful doing remote workshops for. <laughs> very different Uh, everything takes twice as long oh my god um but i but you know like i joined this new company and they were they were using a confluence document to take notes while they were having a retrospective and i was just (laughs) like oh well let's try we have these google slides and, and virtual sticky notes and Let's write on the virtual sticky notes. And I mean, they were just like, whoa, this is awesome. <laughs> and I happened to show it to some people in other depart- departments or other teams. And several teams have now adopted that. They just, it never occurred to them before yeah. that if everybody could write on sticky notes, just like they used to do in the office, <laughs> people would feel more comfortable, you yeah. know, talking about things and may- maybe be able to identify. What is the biggest problem that we have? So um, sometimes you just the simplest ideas. So yeah, people who know how to do remote facilitation lately have influenced me a lot.
1: <laughs> Brilliant, absolutely, yeah, they're they're fantastic.
2: Absolutely. I mean, when the pandemic hit, you know, Janet and I have our agile testing for the whole team course, and we're like, eh, it's an on site course. Yeah. Um, Janet was able to transform it in like three weeks to be fully remote with all the same exercises. Mm-hmm. But we had to cut out a lot of content because you
1: it takes longer. Mm-hmm. You
2: can't do it all. People can't be on zoom forever. I mean, we you know, of course, you can break it up and have it more days and fewer hours each day. But uh, yeah, there's some real challenges there. Awesome. So every time we think we're solving some problems, new ones come up that we didn't <laughs> expect.
1: And that's the beauty and the, and the frustration of life in one, right? cool well, Absolutely. it's um amazing how time flies right we've already been talking for for over an hour and we are very conscious of the fact that you've donated your time so yeah generously. thank you very much Lisa. oh i'm thank happy you.
2: it's such fun to talk to y'all i wish <laughs> we could get in a real pub and have a beer and you could give me more tips on coaching
1: i'm sure it <laughs> won't be long
2: influencing people because i do struggle with it
1: i'm sure it and, you be. know
2: i mean like i say you know I, I feel, I, I, look, when Jan, I look at the books that Janet and I wrote and I'm like, wow, <laughs> do we write that? It sounds really good. <laughs> um, but, and yet on a day-to-day basis on my own team, it's like, I'm a tester on a team. Um, mm-hmm. I have terrible imposter syndrome. Yeah. And they aren't necess- they're not going to do something cause I said so. So I have to be smart about how can I influence them? Who can I, who are my allies who could help me get something going? It's a struggle. Well, oh. it's,
1: it's a strange thing, isn't it, that you've influenced thousands of people away from where you are and, and yet the, the people that you're working with is it's a little bit harder. But I think that's that's pretty common as well. But you have, and you have influenced a huge number of people fantastically and, and, and the industry as well. So um, thank you again for that. And uh, we thank raise an well. empty glass to you, Lisa. Uh, <laughs> but next time All right,
2: we... I'll raise my my tea, my <laughs> builder's tea. It will be a full <laughs> glass.
0: But thanks again. Thank you very much, Lisa. Great to meet you. See you soon. Thank
2: you.